0: Hello and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place where we share creative and inspiring learning in our schools. Season 6, episode 94. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. My name is Mark Taylor. This week as we continue the English and literacy season, it's my privilege role to, to bring you a live lecture given last week by Professor Theresa Kremin, entitled Reading for Pleasure, Developing Readers for Life. Now this lecture is brought to you by the National Association for Primary Education, who every year have a lecture based on the life and work of Christian Schiller. As you will know, NAEP, the National Association for Primary Education, are the sole sponsor of the Education on Fire podcast network and Primary Music on Fire membership site. So it's a real honour for me to be able to to share the great work they're doing and be able to bring you such a wonderful lecture and experience. So I hope you enjoy this. This is Professor Teresa Kremin, Reading for Pleasure, Developing Readers for Life.
1: I feel we are enormously privileged to have you with us, Teresa. And I think we're all very much looking forward to your lecture this evening, Teresa Ferry. Thank you. It goes downhill from here, I fear. But anyway, thank you very much, Robert. And I'm glad to be here to share some thoughts uh, on reading for pleasure and developing readers for life uh, with you all tonight. Um, As Chilla said, our aim then in helping children to read and write is not to instruct them in a skill, but to show them how to use and how to love books, how to use language and how to love books. And although in the time he was writing, 71 books were probably the dominant theme, and now we're dealing with a wide range of different kinds of print media, uh, digital included. It's that uh, passion and commitment to uh, loving language and loving literature and nonfiction that I'm trying to open up. So in my uh, lecture tonight, I want to try and achieve these three things. I want to explore some of the benefits and challenges of fostering RFP, my quick acronym for Reading for Pleasure. I want to share some research findings and class and consequences of teachers becoming what I and others have called reading teachers. Now, you know, you know, by way, we're all reading teachers. If you teach primary, you're teaching reading. But I'm trying to capitalise the R and capitalise the T and want to unpack with you during this session what I mean by doing so, you know, what that denotation means. Uh, And then I want to note some follow-up support that you might be interested in following up if if this is of interest to you in regard to the Open University's Reading for Pleasure website, which is based around uh, the research that I've done. And of course, I want to and must share my passion, because in every context that we're in, we've got to say, who are we? Where are we? What's the values I have on the street, as it were? And I hope that the values I'm uh, denoting in the kind of... I was going to give myself denoting three times I'm obviously nervous that word is now going to come back on us again we'll be denoting all evening heaven help us it's a podcast I think they're recording it, it makes it much more demanding um, I looked down and found myself saying the same thing but I do think it's important to share our passion with children with adults with one another about whatever it is yeah? because then it surfaces what counts and why it counts and it asks us and others to ask questions about why we feel so keenly why this makes so much difference so that's a kind of structure hope it's going to be useful to you the first part is an argument (coughs) based entirely upon research the benefits and challenges the second part is using the research findings to be much more applied in terms of classroom consequence so for the teachers who are here the second part i'm not putting sure you'll be interested in the first but the second has possibilities for going forward playing as it were exploring learning uh, alongside the youngsters Okay, so that's the plan. What research am I drawing on? Well, essentially, I'm drawing on my own research. Mainly, but not exclusively, the Teachers Readers research, which was undertaken with the UK Literacy Association. It was two phases, a big survey, and then a development project funded by the Esme Fairburn Foundation here. Then I'm also drawing on some more recent research I've done with Joan Swan from the OU, into extracurricular reading group uh, research, research into digital books which is not my strong forte, it has to be acknowledged, but I was doing that with my colleague Natalia Kersikova. And then most recently, one of the most sobering pieces I've ever been involved in, that struggling boy readers research, which kind of shocked me to the core, really. Took me right back to, what is it you think you understand, as it were, and how challenging is this space? You think reading for pleasure? Surely we'd crack that one. And then you go to look at what teachers are doing when we've identified four schools who have spent time money and effort on developing reading for pleasure and you find that the boys who are struggling in year five couldn't possibly not struggle because they've been deemed struggling boy readers somehow and that has hermetically sealed them within the system that means they don't get the opportunities other children get because they're the strugglers and so they need to go out and get extra spag or they need to go out and get one-to-one. So they miss the reading aloud opportunity, and they miss the chance to go into the reading corner and choose what they might want, because they have yellow box, because they're yellow box readers. Do you see where I'm coming from? It, was really, it shocked me enormously because we'd gone to schools so where I had reputational for being fabulous at reading for pleasure. We went to look at the best practice to see if the strands of the teachers readers research were being emanated out and it was quite the antithesis and made me realise how jolly complex and how important it is that we keep on this door, we keep open this understanding of trying to move further about what we mean when we say reading for pleasure and what we mean when we look at it in the classroom. And then, of course, I'm drawing on other people's studies, too. So just to give us a definition for this session, I'm seeing RFP as volitional, an act of choice. You choose to do it. If you're reading for pleasure, you might be reading a tweet. There's your grandson's born. Hurrah, you know it's going to happen today. You're going ping, ping, and when it comes in, you're dying. We were about fortnight a ago dying to know the name of this new grandson. Arthur Elliot is the answer for that question. And, um, it didn't please my husband, but I think it's still lovely name. So that was a kind of tiny uh, tweet, as you were. Choosing to read, knowing one of those pings means his name will be in there this new person in our family, in our world. In other un- context it might be the newspaper on a Saturday morning, because after all, reading can involve any kind of text. It's not just books. It's so only us who you get ourselves book bound. Uh, it can take place anywhere. Yeah? So you might be on in a Caribbean Idol, you might be on the bus, yeah? uh, you might be at the kitchen table, and it can be both solitary, in that moment as it went ping and I went, oh, Arthur Elliot! And my husband goes, what? <laughs> to Arthur Elliot! Again, as it were, social and interactive. It's always, though, this reading we're engaging in, whether it's for pleasure or otherwise, dependent on the text that we're engaging with at that moment and the context, the social context, the historical context, the frame for it. So I thought we might start with the story, since if we're going to share some pleasure in reading tonight, then we should have some common text uh, for all of us. A text in common, King of the Sky, by Nicola Davis, illustrated by Laura Carlin. It rained and rained and rained. Little houses huddled on the humpback hills, chimneys smoked and metal towers clacked, clanked. The streets smelled of mutton soup and coal dust and no one spoke my language. All of it told me, this is not where you belong. Just one thing reminded me of home, of sunlight, of fountains, and the vanilla smell of ice cream in my nonna's gelateria. It was Mr Evans's pigeons in their loft behind my house, cooing as if they strutted in St Peter's Square in Rome. Mr Evans' face was crumpled, and he could hardly walk, but when his birds flew, he smiled like springtime. I stood beside him, and I watched as the pigeons soared above the chimneys and the towers, up to where the sky stretched, all the way to Italy. A lifetime working in a coal mine had taken Mr Evans's breath away, so he spoke soft and slow, slow enough for me to understand. I like to see him fly, he whispered, after so long, and Every day I came to see the pigeons, training them to race, Mr Evans said. This one's going to be champion. And he put a pigeon in my hands. I felt its small heart racing beneath my finger and the push and power of its wings. Its head was whiter than a splash of milk and its eye blazed fire. Name him, yours, the old man said. I didn't have to think. Read a chelo, I replied, king of the sky. Mr Evans showed me how to catch the birds and slip them in a basket and then wheel them to the basket to the station in a barrow. How far did I then, Mr Evans, the station master would ask, and my friend would name the station up the line 510, 20 miles away, a little further each time. They don't need a map like we do, Mr Evans told me. <clears throat> they're born, learn how to find their way. All they need's a bit of practice. Back at the loft we'd wait, eating Mrs Evans's Welsh cakes and squinting up at the light. Look out now, Mr Evans would say. Keep those young eyes of yours peeled. He never took them long. From places far away, places they'd never been, the pigeons flew home, straight and fast as arrows. But that pigeon with the milk-white head was always last. Still, Mr Evans said he'd be a winner. He's a hero, old man wheezed, just like pigeons in the war, carrying messages when the shop. Just you wait, see. Every day, Mr Evans grew a little weaker, and by racing season he couldn't leave his bed. So I put the race rings on the pigeon's legs, and I took them to the station, and then I scoured the sky for their return and checked them in. Mr Evans' bedroom wall was papered with their winnings, but there wasn't one for Raider Chalo, my king of the sky. Got the rings for distance, Mr Evans breathed. Here's the race he's waited for, and he handed me an entry form, king of the sky, would go to Rome by train, then race back a thousand miles and more. I smoothed his feathers. I looked into his eye and put him in the basket for the journey. A part of me was going with him, and I wasn't sure it would come back. The race day dawned. A storm blew in. lightning, wind, rain. I waited for two whole days and nights, but the pigeon with a milk-white head did not return. I sat beside my friend's bed and I told him that perhaps the sunlight and the fountains and the vanilla smell of ice cream from a thousand gelatieri had made our pigeon want to stay. No, said Mr. Evans, that will only tell him this is not where you belong. The old man's eyes blazed fire. Get out there, boy, he said, and welcome him. The rain had stopped, and I ran out to the loft. I squinted up into the clouds a, a speck, a blob, a bird a pigeon with a milk-white head, a hero, and a champion. Twelve hundred miles he had flown from somewhere far away he'd never been, steered north and west, finding his direction from the sun and the force that guides a compass needle, flown until he'd seen the shape of the humpbacked hills, the little lines of little houses in the chimneys, heard the clanking towers, smelled the soup and the coal dust, and flown down into the arms of the smiling, crying boy, the boy who knew at last that he was home. King of the Sky by Nicola Davis and Laura Carlin. A book about difference, about uh, traveling, about potentially being a refugee, about being left out or left in by the baby. Did you see mummies having the baby? Is he left out because of the baby, or is he left out because they've moved? A piece of writing, I think, uh, by Nicola Davis, reminding us that reading for pleasure is about meaning-making and choosing to make it. And by the look on your faces, some of you were making meaning, and some were having a breathing space. That's called life. Every time you read a book, every time I read a book, there are going to be people who've got too much in their heads, but they've got to do the sorting. Haven't you all been there in assembly or in the staff meeting? You know, plenty of both where I've sorted my mind out, and then somebody goes, you've got to do this, or discuss that, and you think, oh, I hope somebody was listening, somebody will tell me afterwards, because we always make choices, and it depends on the text, and the context, and the reading of that text that invites us to make the meaning, or leaves us, uh, as it were, in a space where we hurry on with the other things we consider to be more important. As the OECD's evidence says, The reading of pleasure is the single most important indicator of a child's success, and initially I want to share some of those many benefits that are evidenced by research summarised by that sentence. So, there are cognitive benefits. Not surprising to anyone in the room, I'm sure, but childhood reading from Alice Sullivan's work is very clearly shown from the British cohort study of 1970 that there is substantial cognitive process if you read as a child, you are going to shift your literacy and numeracy scores between 10 and 16. There is a correlation between the two, as it were. Reading is most strongly linked to progress in vocab, so there we are, all running around chasing after vocabulary. Yeah, what we need are children who are choosing to read, who are developing as lifelong readers, and us supporting them because they'll be expanding that vocabulary, her evidence says very clearly from a very large cohort study. And strikingly, reading with pleasure, she argues, is more strongly linked than parental education to cognitive progress in adolescence. Yeah? So it kicks into touch the previous belief that mother's highest educational level will influence the education level of the child. We can change that one if the children choose to read and if we enable them to be readers. And many of them don't choose to read. So we have to look to ourselves to say, how can you shift that piece? there's clearly lots of cognitive evidence from elsewhere in the world. We've been doing a recent review of this, and this um, highlights the association between RFP and success. For example, in that McGrain study, which was the Progress in International Reading Literacy study, uh, on average, you got 45 points more if you marked up the paper elsewhere that said, I read for pleasure, I regularly read for pleasure, and, the heart, and more frequently, you mentioned reading for pleasure in that part of the paper, there was a relationship, you are on average 45 points more likely to score highly on the attainment. Yeah. Uh, the Sugar Schu- and durer study uh, highlights, again, in the US, with a study of 156,000 youngsters, something not dissimilar. Uh, those who choose to read in childhood will be making a difference to their life chances and to their uh, reading attainment later on. Quite sure why these are coming in this strange order, but anyway, let's just carry on and <laughs> ignore it. I'm <laughs> quite happy I was doing um, connections and obviously weirded them. Senegal's work in Canada is also very interesting because that highlights about narrative writing. So it's a small study, only 120 young people, but there's a clear correlation between those who read outside school choose to read voluntarily in their time and the quality of their narrative writing. Now, this isn't a panacea, this piece. I'm not trying to suggest here that if we can get this one right, everything else will fall into place. But I kind of do think there's quite a bit of truth, not in panaceas, but in attending to this closely. A colleague of mine, um, uh, Sonia, who works in Birmingham at St Matthews, um, has put RFP as the backbone of their practice. Uh, And in... um, and, and over the last nine years, they've moved from 30% reading, as it were, reading scores, to roughly between 89 and 91. They have really, and she says we are absolutely persistent about it. Her uh, phrase is uh, supporting the reading poor becoming the reading rich. So, she's wanting to make that difference by uh, focusing on reading for pleasure throughout that primary curriculum, never letting it go, not letting it be something we do this year, and then next year we'll do science and revise the curriculum, but letting this be the backbone that actually runs as a red thread through everything. There are other cognitive benefits too, are clearly evidenced in other studies that highlight improved general knowledge. I mean, as teachers, it's hardly surprising, is it? This one's so obvious, you know. If children are going to read more widely, they're going to know more about the world. Whether it's fiction they're reading, or World War II, Letters from the Lighthouse, or whether it's poetry and non fiction woven together by Jackie and Robert McFarlane, or um, information about Brexit, whether well, or not that's going to really survive and help us, another matter, but know. Anyway, that's a political aside. Uh, and then, uh, what's the. What's the place, piece playing here, it's about independent reading, but it's also about volume of that independent reading. If you choose to read for pleasure substantially in your own life, you get through quite a bit of it because you want to do more of it, more in the newspaper, more in that fiction book. Find out more about Bali because you want to go there on holiday, so you read more about it. And as you read more, you bump up that reading volume. Evans's very large-scale study, too, highlights that the number of books in a home is a powerful indicator of reading. Forty-five countries involved in that study, Evans et al., 2010, making it abundantly clear that the number of books in the home has a relationship with the reading achievement. And yet, you know, at one point or other, we had um, uh, Nick Gibb uh, Gove and others pulling back on offering book trust books to our nation, as it were. But we need to be sure to get books into children's hands to take them home that they want to read uh, when they get there. So reading volume is a key piece of it. And some more recent work we did on digital uh, suggests that actually teachers don't often monitor much about reading volume and choice. You know? So children may write down the book they're taking home, which is my scheme book. Yeah? And so my mum reads a bit from the scheme book, and then I can see all the scheme books, but the independent reading they're doing separately may not be listed, may not be monitored. And I don't mean in a hard, aggressive way. I just mean, is it known about? Uh, and are we monitoring what choices they're making in any way? Uh, certainly the digital library systems um, do do that for <coughs> us. So something like Accelerated Reader, and I'm not against it per se. I'll speak about that separately, but I do think they do depersonalise it the digital library system does it for you. Well, hello, I'm the teacher. I want to do it with you, not for you. I'm part of the enterprise. My knowledge and expertise and your interest and enthusiasm have got to be matched so that you're interested in hamsters or BMX or cooking, and I can find the book that might uh, um, open the door for you so that I become the co-men- co-reader and mentor, not the monitor and curator of your reading through the system that's digitally provided for me. Obviously, there are two social and emotional benefits, a wide range of these, and I'm sure you're aware of them, although it's true to say that most of these are argued, not evidenced in quite the way that the previous studies are. So previous studies tend to be large-scale. These tend to be much more small-scale and more observation-based. But as Kidd and Cassano say here, readers of literary fiction must draw on a theory of mind to infer the feelings and thoughts of others. So that sense of when we engage with... Uh, this text, you're beginning to feel how he feels. Partly from that stunning visual. All of this told me this is not where you belong. That's from the power of the, all this told me it's not where you belong. It's also another way of reading the page. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or of this, to old this is not where you belong. Yeah. There are different ways of reading it, but the visuals and the, if it's conveyed in a manner that's going to hit home and not going to suddenly say, shall we find another you know, key vocabulary word for belong? Everybody get out your vocabulary books and we'll define belong again. Is it belong, belonging? Is it the past or the present? And now we've you know, murdered the basket book. <laughs> rather than invited children to feel <coughs> how he might feel. We don't even know his name. Is he Italian? Is he Welsh? question mark? There's an opera made about I wish I'd seen it, but anyway. Uh, And as uh, Rothbauer says here, reading can help mediate the challenges in negotiating non-mainstream identities. And again here, reading, individuals who frequently read seem to be better to uh, understanding others, empathising and seeing the world from their perspective. There's a lot of interest in reading and empathy at the moment. There isn't a lot of close documentation and it's much harder, as you can well imagine, to document the evidence that or document any evidence around developing empathy and making a relationship between uh, that and children's reading um, for pleasure. It's clear, though, that as um, Schiller argued, uh, we need to be able to see the world from other people's point of view, and we need to listen to what our children uh, are sharing with us. So literature is a key part of that. Uh, There's a very interesting recent paper, just came out about a month ago, uh, by John Jerem and Gemma Moss at the Institute. Uh, which actually is focused on um, the PISA, which is 15-year-olds, the um, uh, international study again, 25,000 teenagers in 35 countries. Uh, And they looked at um, those children who report reading magazines, non-fiction, news, newspapers, and comics, and fiction. Those are your five choices in PISA. And they found there was a sizeable fiction effect. Those children who read more fiction than uh, the other strands of different kinds of texts. Not, not to be anti-newspapers, just to say that fiction offers us something different. There was a sizeable fiction effect using regression analysis to highlight there was a positive association between reading fiction frequently and reader achievement. Now, it arguably makes sense because reading fiction is elusive, is metaphorical is more demanding than reading, well, I think sometimes reading the newspaper is very demanding, but anyway, I was <laughs> at the point, you can see what I'm stretching for, so that those who read fiction uh, were associated with higher reading scores, and that's an interesting issue because uh, Marianne Wolfe's recent book that highlights that she's concerned for our children of today uh, because she feels that uh, there's very little deep reading going on in our fast-paced digital world, as it were, and this tunes into that and says these people who read fiction are surviving well through the system in terms of uh, both achievement and attainment, and perhaps we need to focus more on the slow reading of literature in our fast-paced world and let ourselves pause, ponder, blether, enjoy that fiction, rather than read that one and then get on to another one. Do you see what I'm doing? And there are obviously other social-emotional benefits that we highlighted in our own study when we saw that enjoyment was placed at the centre. And we found teachers participating, as I've alluded to before, as fellow readers. And then new reader-to-reader relationships developed both between teachers and pupils and pupils and pupils. So there was a kind of readerliness going on in the classroom that was about our community of readers. And those reading communities were very relationship-strong and were highly interactive. So there's a lot of conversation, socially motivated that we want to talk about. So what do I do on a Saturday morning? The Guardian will be on the table. I would have made a coffee. My husband will have the sports bit. I'll have the other bit, and then I'll start ranting. Because I want somebody to t- fight back at me, and then he'll start. But he doesn't really talk about sport very much. Because if he starts on that, I'm afraid I can't join in. Because I'm uh, sorry for anybody in the room, but I'm not awfully uh, interested. Yeah? And of course, we do have our own interests in to that. Of course, we do. Just as every single child I've ever taught has their own interests, passions. And if we don't know those children, we don't know their passions, interests, how can we going to find the books that are going to take them on the next step on the journey that makes that connection? So, of course, we have to be readers in that sense. So, just to revise my quick intro, which is RFP suggests there's an increased attainment, in literacy and numeracy, better general knowledge and vocab, encouraging imagination, empathy and mindfulness, and reader-to-reader relationships. Much more easily said, the OECD arguing, the will influences the skill. So engagement in reading can be a consequence, as well as a cause, uh, of higher reading skill. They operate bi-directionally, like that. So reading skill will influence reading will, and so forth. So this could be really good news. We've got all this good evidence to suggest it makes a difference. (coughs) Uh, However, my view is there are very significant challenges. The first one is, uh, I'm afraid in England, we're not that great in terms of children's attitudes to reading. Students' attitudes to reading are relatively low compared with their skills. So, scores on the doors, high. do I like it, I can't be bothered. Okay. So next time round in pearls, that's the most recent pearls, came out in December 2017, next time round, there'll be consequence. Because if the will influences the skill, and we're only focusing on the skill at the exclusion of the will, uh, we'll have consequences. In English-speaking countries, in the same study, England had the lowest ranking for enjoyment. And Bar Australia, the lowest for engagement in reading. Right? These are ten-year-olds undertaking this study. Uh, teachers' perceptions. This was our struggling boy readers study, dear me. Uh, teachers' perceptions of the fact that these were boys, the fact that these were from you know families round here, only a mum, did you know that kind of. I'm afraid, but I'm quoting only a mum, and ethnicity constrained the engagement of it. Many teachers in our study were saying, well, you can't expect much because you know Teresa. Did you know that? Well, he's a boy. He wouldn't, would he? And so my lovely girls love reading. Literally, I'm quoting teacher's voice. My lovely girls love reading, but most of the boys don't care for it. But my husband doesn't like it either. So <laughs> what are we doing? Doing accepting, accepting this? What's it called? Educator? Professional? Excuse me? But that's a, a kind of stereotype that's lain on from the press, from lots of media hype. Uh, the backwash of assessment certainly friends and shapes RFP pedagogy. So we did see, sadly, in that study, teachers doing reading aloud. And they'd been emasculated, you know, ima- I don't know what the word is, the wrong word, but destroyed. Reading aloud would be an easier one, yeah, by simply doing that comprehension questions. And you, and you, and you, so in the middle of a piece of chapter, suddenly, what do you think is going to happen next? Why do you think he chose the word adroit? Matthew, what do you think about the fact that his brother is coming down the stairs when it could have been his sister? But what do you think? Why do you think the author chose that? What? I mean, there is an adult, and I've lost the plot. (laughs) So what are these year fives doing there? And they're just answering teachers' questions. So it isn't actually read aloud. That is teaching reading comprehension. It's a bit fast-paced, and it's a bit like seven nines. But you know, if that's the way they want to teach reading comprehension, fine. Just don't call that reading aloud on the curriculum, and give it a space where reading aloud is offered for genuine engagement, for pause, for ponder, for thinking. Tell your neighbour, do you think he it was Italian? I mean, what was that business about Rome? Yeah? And tell your neighbour, why did the man keep? Why did the author mother, keep saying that about you know, the red eye? Did anybody notice the red eye came twice? Did anybody notice? The white head came twice. If we took this, printed it out, took away the pictures, you can see that literary artifice is extraordinary in that text. But I wouldn't want the answer coming to me, because I don't need to know. And I don't even know there is a right answer. I'd love it if you chatted her, and then i will chat to somebody else. And then in chatting, we might begin to build our meaning, not destroy our pedagogy, because we're so obsessed with the scores on the doors that we direct our practice towards it. And then teachers' knowledge of kids' literature is dominated by Dahl and celebrity authors, as we've very clearly shown over time. And that professional conceptions of reading and RFP tend to be rather book bound. I have to put the noose around my own neck for that. You know, I find myself having to re- literally concentrate and make sure I'm including the digital. Because I was brought up in a family when digital wasn't around. And so I read books. And I think of it still as books. And I have to say, come on, Teresa, wake up. You're in the 21st century. Hold on to it. Natalia keeps reminding me. Uh, okay, so I would argue that there are challenges between these two. There are tensions that are operating. There are lots of evidence of cognitive benefits, social and emotional benefits, very clear. Most of our head teachers in the country I don't think are aware of all those benefits. Many teachers are not either. But equally, at the same time, because they're only being assessed and aggressively assessed at that on the final scores, then one can understand the pressure that pushes towards reading instruction. And yet, if we could find the way that the will and the skill can feed one another, which they do if we foster it, We'd be able to build readers for life, which must surely be the maximum entitlement, develop lifelong readers who choose to read, rather than uh, only children who reach the expected standard and who read for the system and then stop. Uh, I remember Dorothy Heathcote years ago in a lecture said <coughs> she'd asked a child, uh, why are you reading? And he said, So I can stop. <laughs> <laughs> We want them to do it forever. We want them to find new meanings in life, in their own inner worlds as well as outer worlds, and to make decisions uh, that are part of it. So I'm going to pause there for a moment and ask you. I did have made an argument about some of the benefits and some of the challenges. What do you reckon? Please just tell somebody near you. What do you think? Am I barking? Am I pushing a door that's kind of open? You go, Teresa, I knew this anyway. Fine. You know, we're going to move on to a reading teacher's dance. But take a break to make a moment of meaning for yourself. Uh, please, over to you. Mm. Okay, so I'm moving to a more practical stance, as it were, taking too much time, wrote too much, apologies for that, that's called bad time planning, I can only apologise for it. I'm focusing on reading teachers and I want to unpick this notion. I want to kind of just ask us some quick questions. Who are we then as readers? Might we share who we are as readers with children, Uh, what's in school even? And might we reflect on our experience of reading and learn valuable (coughs) lessons for developing lifelong readers? One of, uh, one of Schiller's strong strengths was to being creative, coming at things from another way. We've come at things for years from the, all right, well, I'll change my pedagogy, they won't give lots of reading aloud, and I'll change my pedagogy, we all have independent reading time. Back in, I don't know if it was, the late 80s, the HMI Purple Ripple document, some of you are not old enough to remember what I'm talking about, and some are. I remember meeting in a teacher's centre and discussing the fact that we were doing a lot of reading, independent reading time, and that was valued and supported. A few years later, the National Literacy Strategy came in and said, enough of this independent reading time, for goodness sake, teach them to read. Don't just give them the space to do it. And we must surely have both. Somebody needs to give me the skills to do this, but they also need to give me the chance to sit down and get my nose in a book that I want to read. Not what you want me to read, (laughs) but what I chose. And if you don't like it, tough, because I do like it. I don't like what my husband reads, and I don't want to dislike it. I couldn't give a fig about it.
0: So so does that make me
1: of him? It's just, my he doesn't want to read what I would read in a red magazine or something. And think, Teresa, you can't afford that. You're not buying it. I'm not (laughs) paying for it. We're allowed to be different. And so one of the pieces we did in our own study was focus on this reading teacher's notion, holding up a mirror to our own reading practices in our lives, my life, not our generic lives, my life, and say, what do I do? When do I do it? What does it mean to me when I do it? And then when I begin to ask them those <coughs> questions, who am I as a reader? Who might could I share some of that in school? Would it be useful to anyone? Yeah. Would it be useful to the children? Because I'm not in there to showcase who I am. I'm here to educate them, enable them, enrich their lives, make them enable them to be lifelong readers. So I want to kind of unpick some of what we did on that journey. Those were the findings from the whole study, but the piece I'm focusing on in this uh, lecture is being reading teachers. It's the most creative strand. The others are arguably obvious, as it were, although our research did document the very big difference knowledge makes. Uh, So, let's start with that knowledge. If I'm a reading teacher, capital R, capital T, then clearly, I read, don't I? So that's fine. Over to you for a quick conversation from somebody about one minute on something you've loved. Maybe it's one of those, maybe it's something different. Some kids lit you've loved. Over to you for a quick compiler.
0: Okay, as
1: my own work (coughs) and that of the National Literacy Trust showed, we are rather dull dependent. In our survey of 1,200 teachers, only one person mentioned Carol Ann Duffy, 24% couldn't name a picture fiction creator at all, and 22% didn't name a single poet. These weren't literacy leads, they were teachers of children who are teaching children to read. If they have limited knowledge of children's literature, they're not able to either, in my view, develop readers, nor certainly become reading teachers. It isn't enough. The (coughs) subject knowledge is too scant. It's leaning on childhood, and it was utterly dull-dependent. And when Christina (coughs) and Anna said in 2015, can we use one of the same three questions you used in our survey around teachers' knowledge, said yes, and the same answer came out. Dull-dependent. Williams came in by 2015. He wasn't the next. The rest are celebrity authors you could name now. No criticism of a single one. But that isn't enough. It isn't enough because children's authors are producing brilliant books now. Today, new authors are being, uh, you know, publishing for the first time. I and you, each one of us, have responsibility to get to know them. Because how are we going to bring children forward if we're not aware of what might suit them if we knew them? as well. So you'll, you'll want to widen <coughs> the reading challenges. We always do. You might want to read book awards. You might want to, you know, have, as one school I know in Cambridge, they have every staff meeting, doesn't matter whether it's on math, P R or sausages, as it were, somebody reads a book aloud. Yeah? Two, it has to be a different somebody each time, and it has to be on the uh, whiteboard so it's been scanned in. And then they share it, leather about it, and move on. Because that way, begin as a staff to widen their
0: knowledge.
1: UKLA book awards are brilliant because they're judged by teachers for teachers. It's just worth hitting the net and seeing what the last two years are and say, OK, we've only got 100 pounds. Let's spend the 100 pounds wisely where teachers have said these books work with our children. You might also go to Carnegie, because the Carnegie Medal, stretching up the top end of two to three, have been going since 1937. And they are usually brilliant books, sometimes very demanding and contentious, that's true. But they are brilliant nonetheless, uh, judged by children's librarians across the country. We need to get to know the best so our children have access to that highest quality. Not to suggest that we have a, a list that everybody must read. I'm not quite sure about that. Because if a list everybody must read, would my husband's rugby be on it? Does it work if he was a child, I mean, would it be there, or would it not be there because we haven't found anybody who's written apart from uh, Tom uh, Palmer about rugby, I know the only person I know who's written about rugby. And then we want to make the step of, if we've got this knowledge, we need to share it. Fabulous Carl Duke from uh, Lincolnshire, uh, Lawton, C of E Primary, sharing his knowledge. He's their teacher, and he's sharing his knowledge with a brilliant box on the door, outside, and on the corridor, saying, this is me, this is what I've read recently, and keeping changing it. Uh, others might be saying, this is what we're reading on the door. Can, have you read it too? Come and chat to me about it. Come and talk to me about it. Sounds, sounds a little bit imperious, doesn't it? Come and have a blether, or do have a blether if you want to. I'm always very conscious of the kind of words we use. Come and talk to me i being a bit rude to the person who put it up, but there we are. I'll apologise to her. She knows I've only said it to her face. So, you know, or, or are we saying, come and have a chat, you want, have a chat. You know, I'm keeping it low-key. This is about developing pleasure and choice, not about requirements. Uh, this is Carla from the Teachers' Reader Study. She said, these are my desert island books to her class of readers. She was focusing on case-studying three kids who could read but didn't choose to. And by the end of the year, they could read and did choose to because they began to like stuff miss misliked different stuff. Not because they want to read okay. In fact, one of the kids said, my mum reads okay. And they looked at Carla as if, like, maybe you're a bit more human than I thought. You know, that kind of... Um, and then they began to develop some reciprocity. So Top Gear, Magazine, Annabelle, I was interviewing these kids, and Chloe said, there's loads of reading on my phone. You know, and I thought, good for you, Chloe. You're recognising reading in the real world, rather than feeling it has to always be books. Because maybe books haven't served you well in the past although she was able to uh, identify animal arc uh, also that she wanted to take. Uh, Giving that chance to read aloud so that when we share, or have a book knowledge, I want to share that book knowledge. One of the ways of doing that is to read aloud. Uh, and so uh, I just thought I'd give you a quick poem while we're on it. So, pinchy, 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 fly, fly away, birdie birdie birdie, fly, fly away. from Mama till Daddy come, Daddy bring cake and sugar plum, and give baby some. I mean the Caroline Vinci's illustrations are just lovely, aren't they? You know, we could do that in reception in three times, and instead of the bear hunt, we'd be singing this as a class. Yeah? And we'd be going round the classroom, going, clap hands for mama, and just before lunch I'll be going, clap hands for mama. everybody's cupping in, getting themselves changed, and we're moving on. We've got literature, vocabulary, play, words, right, being engaged with rather than will you hurry up everybody? No, Matthew, you can't do that now, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Making the classroom an invitational space rather than a rush one. Anything a ding, the school bell ring. Teacher's knickers tie up with string. String pop, knickers drop. Teacher run out of the room crying. But as I often say, you would, wouldn't you, if your knickers were on the deck? But what I'm trying to highlight is reading aloud demonstrates. I've made some wide choices. I've read widely and I'm going to make some wise choices to read to you. But we do want to be careful that it isn't just us. The children should be reading aloud to one another, too, in reciprocal reading, in visiting other classes. at an Isleworth school in London, uh, um, or a blue school um, in Isleworth, or um, indeed reading to one another in the reading corner. It doesn't have to be me all the time. If this is reading for pleasure, you need the space to do it as well, not just run by me, made by my choices. So you might, if you're a reading teacher, read widely, and share the books you've read. And if you stuff the books you've read on a bookshelf, like that, and say you can come and borrow from me anytime you want as it were, they're only the books that were on your bookshelf. You may not own all of those, but you've read them. So now I can chat to you about it. So when you go, for my do and I say, well, you might like that, you might like this, because I've read that lot. I don't have to read every book on the bookshelf because I can't do it yet, but I can put the ones I have read in a separate space, and then, as Becky Denby did here in an ethics school, be able to share what she does know and infuse with the young people around that. So as this teacher says, well, let's go for this one. A lot of them are choosing to read in free choice time, like Abdul. He asked me if he could talk to me about the book he was reading. I think a lot of that's just because they now know I'm interested. Because I'm reading and talking to you about what I'm reading, even if it's an adult book that I wouldn't read to you, yeah, then you're beginning to be aware, I'm a reader. So we've got reading in common. Yeah? And that knowledge then makes a big difference. But then we need to not just not knowledge of the books or the literature or the non-fiction, but knowledge of ourselves as readers. And I'm going to whiz through this, but there are lots of things you can do if you want to become a reading teacher to begin to share and reflect on who you are. But maybe you'd want to try a reading history. If any of you remember Jackie? Some people remember yes. Yes. Lady. Yeah. Look at this deliciousness. The Guardian and the Observer ran a section on it. There's David Esse. Yes. 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 The, the slade on the back cover there? This was one of my childhood favourites. It was named apparently after Jackie Wilson, who worked as a tea girl. Uh, in the Jackie magazine, and they said we'll name it after her because she's the kind of girl we want to name it after. This is stuff from my past. I just found it on the net, some of it, and my mother's. I even found Little Bear's Visit was written by Sendak, who did Where the Wild Things. I had no idea as a child I was reading Sendak, as it were, uh, in, in that kind of period. And then we might invite other teachers in the staff room to share theirs. This is Steph, it's a friend of mine, Steph Davis. Such a different piece. She's obviously <laughs> younger than me, you can tell that. <laughs> she's also reading MSN. She's reading MySpace, she's recognising diversity in her reading world, and then she could, in fact she did, ask her year sixes to bring in three books on a Monday after the weekend. You're leaving in about three weeks, it was the summer term, you're leaving the school, so you can only bring three books that represent part of your reading history in this school. Either bring them from home, either find them, and spend, you know, a couple of hours exploring book boxes and so on, or find it off the net if you remember it. And this is what one of the children brought in on a PowerPoint, just like this. And she said, Miss Davis, I can't do three. These are the nine that made my decision difficult. Which I think really de- demonstrates two things. There's trust and relationship there, reader to reader, human to human. Because she didn't say, well, I've done the three that Miss wants because we have two. She said, I can't do three. I can do nine. Thank you. And Steph respected that rather than making conformity uh, work. Uh, or not work, it never does. Uh, you might also do 24 hour reads. I'm going to whiz through this, but you can see many of these on the Open University website I was referring to. So, what did you read in 24 hours? This is a friend of mine, in Margate, head teacher there. She shared that. She invited the school to develop their own 24 hour reads, as it were, in different classes. What did we all read in 24 hours? What did Mum read? And Mum sent in this long list of all the stuff she felt obliged to read for Connor and <laughs> Kieran. <laughs> Then some year sixes did what they read in 24 hours. What are we doing here, really? We're saying, what do we do when we read? What is this stuff that we read, as it were? Uh, you might also <coughs> do a reading river, which isn't that different. It just might span a bit more time. Yeah? It's a collage reflecting my reading journey. Uh, this is Lisa Heldman-Say from Peever Superior up in Macclesfield, where I was in Cheshire, where I've been working recently. Stuff she's been reading. And she invited her staff to create their own reading rivers in a in a a staff meeting, so they reflected on what is this stuff we call reading? Is this the same as the reading we do in school? Is this real-world reading? And then the school reading. Is there a relationship? And is it the case that the children in our school, as they indeed found in their school, loved reading at home when they did a survey with them, but they didn't like reading in school, or not as much, put it that way? Then began to say, what's the gap between reading at home and at school? Who's making the choices? So here are different staffs reading rivers, and then here are some children's reading rivers, collages of reflecting diversity, difference, uniqueness, interest. This one comes from the (coughs) the Open University website where a teacher shared what he did based on our work on reading rivers and then picked up the notion. As this teacher says, I was less aware of the online reading they did as well as the magazines, comics and that, that they enjoyed. So using this as a tool to find out about readers, not to make collages that go on the wall. I can be very clear on that. I go around the country now, sometimes visiting schools for research purposes, and say, oh, didn't you do that idea about reading rivers? We've done those. And I say, well, that's great. What did you learn? They're lovely,
0: have not (laughs) they?
1: As if doing them were the act of engagement. Well, doing them is interesting, but learning from them is the point of the enterprise, surely. Mm -hmm. Glory be. So the classroom consequences were the teachers began to question what counts as reading in school, began to devalue a wider diversity of texts and develop new conceptions of uniqueness, and an enriched capacity to bring my knowledge of the literature to my knowledge of you so that I can make the connection. So by holding up that mirror and saying, what do I do in my reading life? When do I do it? I learn more. I'm conscious of time. I think I might make it. Right. This is something I'm literally trying to develop for a chapter I'm writing at the minute. So this is your first tryout of it version of. I think there's a continuum. In our project we had forty-five teachers. Some of them definitely came up here, big R, capital R, big capital T, reading teachers. But some of them said things like, Teresa, where's the objective for being a reading teacher? You know, Teresa, this is too personal. I can't do this stuff. It's about me and my reading. It should be about them. I mean they weren't I'm not being rude to those teachers. They found the boundary between the personal and professional too big. And so they stayed at this end of the continuum and said, I'm going to be positive. I do read. I'm not going to pretend I don't. And I'm going to offer positive disposition towards reading. So we do read. i positive about it. And I have to say, if that's where they're comfortable. And I want to, well, then I leave them there. Or do I want to say, could I stretch you a bit further? Could you read and be positive and then reflect and share? your reading life, your real reading life, not your pretend one. The fact that you read chick-lick, the fact that you read magazines, you know, I read Red quite a lot, I love it. You know, I look at Vogue, I look at you know, what those other ones are called really, but in the dentist and doctor's surgery, I'm like looking at those kind of expensive things. I just think, what, 2,300 pair of shoes? Are you barking? And so I just look, look, I don't go and buy those separately. But Red has some reasonably interesting articles, it makes me feel slightly younger than I really am, as you can probably <laughs> tell. <it up>. Um, <laughs> So they share their reading and then they get to know the kids. So that's kind of where we've just been. i started starting with the teacher knowledge, and now moving to the, OK, let's reflect on reading. What does it mean to us? What do we do with it? Of course, there's lots more you can reflect upon on reading, like how I get emotionally engaged and upset when I read sometimes, angry or sad. And that would be reflecting on my reading, my experience of reading, not just me as a reader. There's loads more in that middle piece, but I haven't got time to share it now, and if we come to this end then we are saying teachers who read they offer positive suspicion, they share their lives and they get to know the kids, but then they do something with that new knowledge so, for example, and I'll give you one quick one a teacher took away a boy in the striped pyjamas wept, took away another book called How to Live How to Live Forever uh, Sally Nichols, sorry Sally lost my voice, and, um, and wept came back to one of our teachers' readers' meetings in London and said, you know, these are children's books, and I've cried oh, my way through both of them. And so we said, hold up the mirror. What does that tell you? Well, said, I've never really talked about crying with the kids. I mean, it's reading for pleasure. But maybe, you know, I read them funny stories. Uh, we said, well, then I expect some of the children in your class have either cried or might need permission to cry or might need to kind of feel they could talk to somebody who felt that was upsetting too. I remember reading Kemsky's Kingdom on the train after I'd been lucky enough to introduce more at a conference. I'd started it the night before, and I finished it on the train. In the morning, I just sat there weeping. And a woman leant over next to me didn't know me from Adam, it's all right, dear. It's only a children's book. <laughs> I didn't know how to respond. I just kept crying, really. Um, but in her head, some of her children's books, one didn't need to cry. But it still hurts. And if we're affectively engaged, do we not want to explore that affective engagement? One of Schiller's strong arguments in that book you're referring to is how do we as educators help children learn to feel with their bodies, their minds, and their feelings, as it were, reflect that. So the people who've really developed, as big R, big T, reading teachers, uh, developed a sense of, I'm going to continually work at this thing, and when I suddenly notice I'm tearful, or when I suddenly notice I'm reading this poem for the third time, in the evening, I think, oh, when do I ever give the children the chance to read poems three times? Or do I just read one poem through them, and then another poem through them, and then another poem? Because we're all trying to do these poems, because they're all haiku, and we're all going to write haiku, as it were, which is using the literature to deliver <coughs> the writing. <coughs> rather than saying, sometimes, the readers read things three times, because they don't make sense the first time, and then it begins to make sense the second time, like peeling an onion, and the third time, you've got it. And you're going, ah, and then you get that satisfaction of having understood it. So Christine went back to her class and said, I'm going to read more poems more frequently to the children. They were in year two, as it were. And she said, I feel like I'm teaching now, Teresa, from a reader's point of view, not a teacher's point of view. That's a reading teacher voice for you. So (laughs) we looked at our data on the kids, and we found putting our teachers, those 45, on a continuum. But those who were reading teachers had made the most difference, going back to our data on the kids as well, um, to children's reading behaviors and engagement in RFP. We did not track attainment. We weren't interested in that. We weren't focused on it. So I I can't tell you what difference it made to attainment. I can tell you, though, that those big international studies say if you kick the RFP into gear, you'll you'll get it going, then that will make a difference to that. And these kids were reading more frequently, choosing to read, liking reading in home and school. Other things they did were to explore um, Daniel Pennack's work on the reading, rights of the reader. You'll see this in lots of schools. Now, it depends on why we do it. Oh, it's an idea. So we get the poster, Quentin Blake did it, and we can all do this, and then all the kids can discuss their rights, and then we'll move on to something else next week It'll be book week, and we'll do something that's antithesis of everybody's rights, because you've got to go to... Do you see what I'm digging for? Whereas if you're holding up the mirror, you're going, what is it really, authentically, that reading is? What do readers do? now what might I do? And these teachers said things like, I didn't finish these books. That's my colleague's death. gave up on them. So she's going to school and told the kids these are the books I never finished. I expect there's nearly everybody in the room can acknowledge with a bit of a nod. A book you've given up on for me? It was Wild Swans, you do Dear grief. Any more Italian? <laughs> have any more Chinese relatives? And I'll to give up <laughs> the guts. And then they made posters about the rights of the reader. The right not to finish a book. Here's a voice from one of them. Um, I once stopped stop reading The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. I got to page 56 and I stopped, the reason i stopped, was because it had good description, and it took him forever to get to the (laughs) movie There's no action, the pages were big and the writing small. I think I'll enjoy it when I'm old, I thought I'd enjoy it as much as The Hobbit, but I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it better that the child learns because they've been given permission to be a reader? Not a schooled reading robot, but a reader, a human in the world, who's got their own rights and responsibilities. This one's a lovely piece I'm going to whiz on, but the mother had given her Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in the end, uh, she finishes with, I don't even get the front (coughs) cover. Is it a bat, two mice, (laughs) a cone, a fish, and a robot's head floating round in space? This book is probably more suitable for (laughs) (laughs) grown-ups. She's probably right. Teachers also began to say, well, if I'm holding up the mirror, where do I like to be? What's comfortable for me? What environmental conditions support me? That's the place I'd like to be, but I want to be on the beach. I want to be on a sun lounger. I don't like the sand in my toes (laughs) and all that. But where would you like to be? And then they said to themselves, well, so what can I do about that in the classroom? Can't produce sun loungers, can't produce comfy sofas. Well, can I do something similar? Do the children have the right to be comfortable and relaxed when they read? Comfy reading is what I've called it. Some guy on Twitter went to, heard me talking somewhere. But amazingly, this thing's gone around about 20,000 times. Uh, just with him talking about uh, when he did comfy reading with his class, the class, in particular the boys he talks about, became comfortable, relaxed, and seemed to want independent reading time rather than being tucked up with a table here and a book there, and now get on with it. And don't move out your seat because there's no changing books during quite reading time because you've got to stay where you are. <laughs> and that's preventing readers rather than enabling them. Uh, also, teachers doing other things, like making dens, creating pillow beds. There's another teacher in Bristol, colleague at Bannerman Road, and she created it. Every Friday, last Friday in the month, I think it was, or first, they have stories <coughs> of hot chocolate. Yeah? So it was a bit of an event. It was a bit more special. Because a lot of the teachers said, when I hold up a mirror to where I read, I've also got a mug of coffee. Or I've got a glass of wine. Or a GMT. I can't provide that, but I could possibly do stories and hot chocolate sometime. In this class, the golden reading crew, eventually they said to another Becky, actually, in another part of the country, um, can we not have them on the floor, these um, rugs and mats? And she said, well, what do you want to do? We want to make reading dens. And they put them over the tables, and the next few weeks afterwards, can we have torches? Yeah. And she said, I would have quit it very quickly, Teresa, they weren't reading. But with a torch and a friend and a cover, they were reading in a way that some of them may not have ever read under the covers at home with a torch, but beginning to find that reading socially supportive. And I just love this picture. This was in a classroom we were in, and this, the, the, we, went, we went over to do some filming for the website. And this is a tea, teaching assistant. She's so into her piece of children's literature that she doesn't notice that the entire class, including the cameraman, <coughs> have gone all over that way to where the teacher's reading aloud in a corner to kind of get that piece, and she's just completely lost in it. Now how lovely that is, if a child looks around and goes, oh, that teaching assistant, that whatever her name, is, Mrs. Blower, whatever, she's really in it, she's lost in it. We're modelling real reading, not pretend reading for school purposes. The right to read anywhere. This teacher's developed outdoor reading adventures every Friday. There's forest school after school, and she used to have 16, they now have to have two mental staff because she's got so many kids who want to come and read in the outdoors after school on a Friday for an hour. Uh, The Right to Share Your Reading or Not, that was that same Bristol classroom, Bannerwin Road. And these two, Year Six, were reading Flip Flap Safari. Oh. The cameraman was filming them and for all my values I must say if I'm being really truthful with you, I'd rather be truthful than not, I was a bit, ooh, can I put that on the website? You know, these are year six, flip flops Safari, you could probably get away with it in year two, but you know mm-hmm. and so I said to Becky, the teacher, But you know, mm-hmm. they're really into that. They were sharing it, laughing, turning the pages, great fun. i mean, I could see that but... and she said, Will you go and ask them what they're reading as well? Really cross me like went over, and one was reading of Philip Fullman, and the other was reading Marcus Sedgwick's *Floodlight*. Oh. Both demanding year six reads, but on that day, they made their own rightful choices, and told me to quit up, as it were, wake up to her own argument. They wanted to share that reading with one another and have a laugh, uh, which I might, uh, indeed, uh, with a friend, but not about the rugby. <laughs> and then some of the teachers in Claire's class drew her, <coughs> because they began to know their teachers as readers. These are are the marks of reading teachers when the children know that you have a passion. She's addressed with lots of books on. She likes to put the new books that are coming out on her calendar. She screams whenever she reads a new book. Uh, She loves Harry Potter because she got a huge version of it for her birthday. Little pieces of knowledge about their teacher who's a role model as a reader same teacher who runs the Forest School on a Friday, showing children in that school that reading counts. It matters to her, uh, and indeed, uh, it could matter to them. <coughs> so I'm coming to a close, uh, but I suppose what I'm trying to highlight here is, as this teacher so brilliantly coined it, I realise, I suppose, that being a reading teacher is about being a role model. And I think of myself, well, as a reader, and I talk to the children, well, as a reader about reading, rather than as a teacher about your reading, but as a reader, a human, about our reading, mine, yours, his, ours, so that we're in that community of readers. And we saw there are lots of consequences for those who did develop that journey. Um, And I'm conscious of time, but there are lots of ways that you were probably already beginning to do so, but could uh, begin to take a step to become that capital R, capital T reading teacher, and documenting the consequences as you travel, so that you can see the difference it might make. It's not another activity. It's another stance, a more personal, I would say, stance towards the classroom and the learners in it, and a more personal stance in relation to your uh, life, too. You might, too, consider joining a OU-UKLA Teachers Reading Group. We've got 80 running up and down the country now, linked to uh, the website. Uh, And if you hit the website, you'll find out more about them. We're starting again in September because the ones running this year are kind of coming to a close. So, uh, thank you for listening. For more ideas, you could go to the website which has loads of stuff that we've been working on. Uh, Examples of practice are all teachers. where teachers have done something. Most of the examples I pulled out there, like the Forest School one, that's Claire's work that she's put on the website, informed by the researchers, saying, can't we teachers make reading more comfortable for our learners, more comfortable for us? Can't we hold up the mirror? Uh, and the web uh, link has just come to it last. But I would argue, really, that reading communities take time. They're strong. They're highly interactive. And they move reading from being that thing you do for Miss, and for the system, to the thing that you want to do for yourself and others, because it's a highly social, collaborative activity, which means there's more pleasure, more meaning, and more purpose uh, in that. Uh, enterprise. I've got too many end arguments, so I'm going to stop myself. How many times can you say the same thing, Teresa? You're stretching the uh, point here. But I suppose this is, for me, the key word. When we do this stuff as teachers, when we hold out the mirror, we begin to see it differently. We don't see schooled reading in the box called schooled reading anymore, or the reading that's yellow box to brown box to free reader. You're a free reader. That means I've now no more responsibility for you. You can go and choose for yourself. As it were, whereas I use all the support I can from my friends and from Waterstones and the labels, and I'd better with you and i go to a book club, but you, you're on your own. You're eight now, so you're on your own. But actually, I need to take responsibility for fostering and continuing to fostering you as a reader, because I can see reading is more than is framed by schooling much more, it's much richer, much more engaging and we can get some of that rich engagement in the classroom uh, if we recognise that Uh, so as Schiller said we can succeed only insofar as we rely on influence instead of power power is the teacher who instructs and knows influence is the teacher who is a reader and who shares her or his passion and pleasure in reading in a way that's clever And creative and holds up a mirror to reading rather than just doing things, activities that move that journey. I hope that was interesting and provocative, at least. Thanks for participating.